Welcome to Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation, and instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchdown telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Grace. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Coping with the Stresses of Caregiving When Your Loved One Has Multiple Myeloma. And uh, this program is one that we had a part one in which we, which we gave a medical update on a multiple myeloma. And now we're going to talk more from a caregiving perspective in terms of the stresses that caregivers experience. Now, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, GlaxoSmithKline, and an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support and their collaboration on this, um, on supporting this program. Not just this program, but many of our programs. And um, also, we have on the program today over 200 participants um, and come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have participants today globally from Canada, India, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And uh, we really um, thank you for spending the next hour with us. Um, you are clearly a group of information uh, seekers. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, I'd like to just ask all of you a few questions. Um, and uh, uh, the reason we do that is that it helps us in planning programs into 2022, which we're now in. Um, it really gives us a sense of what you know coming into the program and then what you know um, uh, so that's really important. It helps us to plan better um, what we're offering you. So I'm, I'm, and those of you who are live streaming the program will be able to see the questions as I read them and will be able to rate um, your answers. So I'm going to start with the first question. On a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the treatment of myeloma in the context of COVID-19 and its variants. One is the highest rating, and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the important role of the caregiver in decision-making and in communicating with the healthcare team. One is the highest rating, and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of the caregiver in adherence, weekends, holidays, and vacations, and the role of the long-distance caregiver. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then the next uh, question is, I understand how to cope with each day, special occasions, anniversaries, and birthdays, and with family, friends, and traditions. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. Understand caregiver self-care tips for managing lifestyle, nutrition, hydration, and stress. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. Now, again, I want to thank you all for participating in this, these, these questions and helping us to understand um, what you know coming into the program. And now it's really my pleasure now to move on and introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Matthew Butler. Dr. Butler is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology, Oncology, Department of Medicine, Mays MD Anderson Cancer Center, UT Health San Antonio. And Dr. Butler will be addressing an overview of the treatment of multiple myeloma in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, the important role of the caregiver in decision-making and communicating with the healthcare team, the caregiver's role in adherence, keeping appointments, filling prescriptions, and reminders for your loved one to take their medication on schedule. And lastly, the benefits of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Butler. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, 
I I take care of a lot of folks with myeloma, and so I, I have a lot of conversations about uh, treatment, uh, about the disease itself, and and what the what the journey might look like. Of course, there's, everybody is different, and and there's a a, a wide range of stories. Um, and uh, you know, if you look online, or you you talk, you know, you're part of patient groups, you you get a scattering of those stories, and uh, but it's sometimes hard to to get kind of a, a balanced picture of what myeloma is like uh, because you you may hear. Um, really, really, you know, good stories with great outcomes. You may hear not so good stories and it's hard to know which, which is which and, and what, what the average person's uh, journey is. Um, so myeloma is a highly treatable cancer. We have great medicines for it, um, but it's a lifelong uh, uh, diagnosis. Uh, it's, it's not something you're ever completely rid of. And so um, you know, our job is to help people uh, live long with it and also live well with it. Um, people who haven't uh, had treatment uh, for the disease and, and they may, uh, you know, have um, family members or experience with treatment for other types of cancer uh, sometimes have have the wrong expectations about what our myeloma drugs are like. Um you know, if chemotherapy for breast cancer or for colon cancer uh, has a set of side effects that's totally different than than what myeloma patients live with. Um, the 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 kind of severe nausea, the kind of um, loss of hair, um, and feeling really really sick that we get with our old our traditional chemotherapies. Um, we don't see a lot of that with myeloma treatments. Uh, and we try our best to 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 make these treatments tolerable because they're they're things that uh, p- people tend to go on with for a long time. Um, as a caregiver, though, you d- you do have to uh, kind of anticipate some of the the, the um, bumps in a road that that the myeloma patients do get. Um, m- many folks are fatigued. That's sort of often how the disease starts and that can that tends to continue some more than others but uh you know lack of energy have a harder time doing things is common um some folks with myeloma will get pain in the bones not everybody um but uh it is a disease that can damage the bones and and uh that can lead to to pain that i've seen get completely better once you start treatment and, and have someone just feeling great but I've seen others that, it, it, that that some of the pain lingers, and you need to be on pain medicine, and that can become a long-term um, issue. Uh, one of the most common side effects of our treatments um, of, of a drug that we use a lot, and it's really been a, a, a an important uh, w- way to deal with myeloma, a drug called Velcade or bortezomib, um, it, but it's known to cause uh, nerve issues. Um, that means numbness, tingling, sometimes quite uncomfortable feelings in the hands and feet. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the, if you're someone that gets that, um, that that can have have big impacts. Uh, can you know make it harder to get around and walk? Can make it harder to do tasks like doing up buttons and zippers and from you know holding keys and change. Um, th- we have some medicines that can help with this. There's some other treatments uh, that, that, that can relieve the symptoms. But the most important thing, uh, if you're starting to get this, is to tell your doctor and to, and to try to avoid th- th- making it worse, um, to, to uh, make adjustments in the, the treatment dose or even change to a different medicine before that problem gets out of hand. Um the every covid-19 has had such a wide ranging impact on on all of our lives that uh, you know everything is now make, making reference to that um so you know so how does that affect the myeloma patient well uh myeloma is a disease of the immune system the cells that 
um, become, you know, dysfunctional in myeloma are the very cells whose job it is to make antibodies and our, our medicines try to suppress them. So there's no way to do that without also suppressing healthy antibodies. So myeloma patients are, are at a little higher risk. Now, higher risk doesn't mean they can't um, get get COVID-19 and get over it. And, and, and I've, I see that on a regular basis, my patients who uh, who get sick with it and who get better. Um, but statistically, uh, it, it, it's, it's something that, that you want to avoid if you're a myeloma patient because you're, you're at a disadvantage. So, um, so I, you know, we're, we're, we really believe in the vaccines. Uh, I, I see them doing a lot of good and I, I, I try to get my patients to, to have, uh, you know, have the, the three doses, um, then we have some other medicines, uh, newer options uh, like a, a treatment called Evusheld that can uh, can try to protect people. But the most most important things are still the simple things, um, trying to stay away from crowded places and in close proximity to to large groups of people who who might you know be able to get to to get you sick without knowing it. Um, and uh, you know we've we've started to take that into account in, in the way we take care of patients. We're doing a lot more visits by video. Most of our drugs still have to be given as an IV or a, as an injection, so it's hard to to, to, do, to keep people out of uh, our treatment centers completely. But, uh, but we do have alternatives. We do have uh, a limited number of regimens where we can treat myeloma effectively just with pills. And um, you know they're they're they may not be the best treatment for everybody, but they're at least worth considering. And uh, and for people that are are really concerned about the risk of COVID or in an area where it's really high, or for other reasons too. Sometimes even people who live far away and have a hard time coming in, um, you know, it, it's worth at least asking your doctor about you know could could we consider an all oral regimen um, because that is considered a, a very you know, legitimate treatment uh, for myeloma. Um, I don't want to take up uh, a too much time. There's a, there's a lot to to be said about uh, the different challenges, and like I said, it's it's so different for different people. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, it's hard to talk about the the average person because everybody there is no average. There are, there are, uh, there's a range of um, uh you know experiences uh with this disease but the the bottom line to to, to keep in mind with, with with everything that we do for for an individual with multiple myeloma is um we are we plan for long term treatment this is a disease that that um that we want to uh you know have someone be able to go on with their life and uh, and live as as well and as normally as possible. For some people, that includes going, you know, being at work and and doing whatever you were doing before you got it. Um, it certainly includes not being in pain, and if that means uh, pain medicines, uh, that's that's the you know the there there are many options for that. Um, and it includes uh trying to have treatments that that have uh manageable side effects that don't cause excessive neuropathy that don't make you sick to your stomach um you know that don't don't take over your life so you can focus on living with cancer rather than just being a cancer patient um and uh and we've made a lot of progress with that and you know that that progress is still going on and um uh you know it's been really rewarding to watch as as new drugs become available and uh, and see people um who are helped by them so um so maybe I'll hand it off to the other speakers but uh I'm always happy to answer questions Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Butler. That was outstanding and um I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A so thank thank you so much. And our next uh, speaker is um, Ms. Allison Arati. Um, and Ms. Arati is um, an oncology social worker, and she's our caregiver program coordinator at Cancer Care. 
And Ms. Arati will be addressing um, deciding to become a caregiver, coping with each day on special occasions, anniversaries, and birthdays, and self-care tips. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Arati. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. Um, so, yes, yeah, so deciding to become a caregiver uh, may not often feel like a choice. Um, it is often really sudden that you take on this role. So it can feel, it, it, it's normal to feel like being a caregiver might have been put on you rather than something um, you decided on. But once you've had that time to really process this new role um, and all that comes with it, think about what the word caregiver means to you. You know, find your voice throughout this journey. And of course, always, always remember to take care of yourself. And it's okay if it takes some time for you and for your loved one to find what, what works best. It, it really can be um, some trial and error in the beginning. But it's important just to be kind and honest about your abilities, not only with yourself, um, but also with, with your loved one. So you are able to work together during this time. And personal responsibilities, they, they don't disappear just because you've become a caregiver. So always remember to communicate with your loved one about boundaries as well when you need to take a break or when you need to attend to personal affairs. And caregiving is something that you will learn to cope with and manage over time. On any given day, make time for yourself to do something that makes you feel good and know that this might look different day to day. Um, what worked yesterday might not work tomorrow, and what worked last week might not work next week. So do not feel discouraged if what worked one other time is not working right now. So it's important to start creating a toolbox of sorts of different hobbies and exercises, techniques, skills that can help you cope with a variety of anxieties and stressors. And talking a little bit more just about caregiving during special occasions like birthdays or holidays, anniversaries, it can be really challenging, but there are ways to manage these days the best that you can. You can first start with talking with your loved ones about, um, I'm sorry, talking with your loved one's medical team about what's safe, what's feasible. And then you and your loved ones may also want to potentially adjust expectations, maybe even establish new traditions. And talking with your loved one about what this day means to them is so important and enjoying those moments that you do get to spend together, even if it looks or feels different. As a caregiver, you absolutely may feel a sense of sadness, frustration, maybe even anger um, and loss because a special occasion has changed. So it's important just to acknowledge those feelings and know that you are doing your best and that you absolutely are valid in those feelings as well. And I do want to take um, a moment to talk more about just the rewards of caregiving as we focus on we often focus on what's challenging, right, about caregiving. Um, so it's important to also highlight those rewards. Um, at times, the rewards, they can feel really hard to acknowledge, but they do exist. So being a caregiver, I mean, can help inspire a sense of purpose and meaning. Caregiving can also build deeper connections between loved ones. Um, but the rewards can also be on a much broader level. So caregiving can help create positive communication, improve understanding of needs, and also offer clear priorities for the caregiver. So rewards of caregiving are not just limited to improving the relationship with your loved one. They can also help caregivers learn new things about themselves and about how to interact with the world and the people around you. And very lastly, caregivers, primary or long distance, have the right to care for themselves. Um, and we'll, we'll absolutely talk a little bit more um, about how to continue to take care of yourselves. But um, even with all of the obstacles that caregivers face, there are ways to help reduce feelings of stress and anxiety to help them feel more manageable. So self-care techniques that caregivers can practice um, include journaling, and there are many different types of journaling, whether you want to 
do gratitude journaling, right? Just listening what you're grateful for each night or weekly. There's also mind dumps. There's um, where you just really just write out everything that's that's on your mind, um, usually at night, um, if you're feeling like you're having difficulty sleeping, or you could do this in the morning as well um, to kind of clear your head at the start of the day. You could also work, you know, work with prompts, journal prompts as well. Um, that really, really encourages self-reflection as well. You can create routines. Um, cancer is is quite unpredictable, pretty much at every turn. So, um, when we are faced with a lot of uncertainty, creating a routine, um, a morning routine, a night routine, or both, can be extremely helpful because that's going to be one or two things. Um, in the morning or the evening that you can reliably depend on to be the same. There's also progressive muscle relaxation, you know, tensing and, and releasing the tension of different muscle groups. Debreathing, um, and that comes in many forms of just taking a few deep and slow breaths. There is also square breathing where you're going to inhale for four seconds, you're going to hold for four seconds, and exhale for four seconds and hold for four seconds as well, um, 10 counted breaths. And there are so many other mindful practices um, that you as caregivers can engage in. And joining support groups, um, engaging in individual support, uh, attending workshops like, like these um, are also really important ways to reduce stress, anxiety, but also feelings of isolation. And all of what I discussed previously can also help with the management of stress and uh, promote caregiver resilience. And, you know, the main focus always for caregivers is to know that you have every right and and every we want you to take care of yourselves. Because um, if you are not taking care of yourselves and you're not at your, you know, 100%, you're not going to be able to provide that level of care that you really want to for your loved one. So it all starts with taking care of you. Um, and that is, is all for me, so I'll pass it back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Arati. That was really excellent, just wonderful suggestions and tips for caregivers, so very, very well done. Thank you so much. And um, uh, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden, and Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Ms. Bearden will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips for your loved one with multi-myeloma and yourself as the caregiver. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to, uh, to Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. <clears throat> and so nutrition and hydration are essential. They're essential um, to provide the energy that, to, that we need in order to do the things that we enjoy. Um, and also, for the patient, um, oftentimes their tolerance to treatment. We heard a little bit about some potential side effects that can come up during the treatment, things like, you know, maybe poor appetite, fatigue, possibly nausea or vomiting. Um, and so what we do um, it is from the nutrition perspective is we kind of we work with the patient based on their unique circumstances. So each patient is very individual. Um, and so when I see situations where the patient and the caregiver work together, where all the burden just isn't on one or the other, um, things happen in a very, um, you know, more positive manner. Um, I know there are times where the patient is not maybe feeling well and able to to do, and so the, the caregiver takes on a lot of that. Um, I get a lot of requests from caregivers about what should I be fixing for my, my loved one, what diet do I need to help get their levels up or their counts up. Um, and there isn't a magic diet, but what we do know is um, we do have information about diet and wellness and nutrition and how it impacts cancer patients, but we also know that a lot of these recommendations span beyond just cancer. Um, and they're helping in reduced risk of other comorbidities. It helps reduce stress. So the diet um, recommendations that are out there now are really about reducing inflammation. And um, in general, what 
the recommendations say is about two-thirds of your plate should come from a plant-based food. Now, the least processed, the better. And this diet is good for patients going through cancer, and it's good for patients and just people in general. Um, we can modify it based on what the, the patient's going through symptomatically from the cancer treatment. But in general, this is good for both the patient and the caregiver. Um, so about two-thirds of the plate coming from a plant-based food and as least processed as we can get. So what that means is that if the food looks like it did when it was harvested, picked off the tree, pulled out of the ground, um, that's what we want to try and get to. So usually this requires food to take a little bit longer to be cooked. And the reason for that is when a food's heavily processed, um, what, they, what they do is they remove a lot of the components that require longer cooking times. One of these things is known as a, an insoluble fiber. We see it a lot in our rice and in our quinoa and in our oatmeal and stuff like that. And so when you're looking for a grain, which is really where it becomes a little bit more confusing, um, you want to look for the grain that has a longer cooking time. So just, you know, look on the back of the oatmeal container or whatever, um, the, the rice, package and typically about 30 45 minutes is the time that you want to look for for the less processed option um, when it comes to our fruits and vegetables ideally fresh and frozen are the most ideal um, frozen sometimes gets forgotten about and with fruit and veggies it's great the reason why the frozen's um, actually better than what most people assume it to be is because it's allowed to ripen completely on the vine it's harvested, it's washed and cleaned and cut, and it's frozen. When you we get a lot of our fresh fruits, for example, they come from many, many miles away. You may be buying, you know, bananas from South America and you might live in Washington State. And there's a, a long time for transportation of, of our fresh fruits. And so I hear a lot from patients that, you know, the food just doesn't taste like it used to. And so I always recommend to them to try the frozen option. They may find that it's a little bit more bountiful in the flavor. But fresh and frozen are going to be the least processed. Canned is processed. It's been sitting in a can for a long time, who knows how long. Um, and a lot of it's degraded. So we want to look at those other two options for our fruits and vegetables. Now, the other third of the plate is going to need to come from a lean protein. And great examples of lean protein include things like um, white meat poultry, that's turkey and chicken, are very lean cuts of red meat. Um, and you can see that on the package by the 96% lean, 98% lean, 94% lean. And our cold water fish. Um, fish in general is a great um, lean protein, but there's some unique features about our cold water fish. And these include two things you may see in the grocery store, something called DHA and something called EPA. DHA and EPA are components that we find in our cold water fish. Now, examples of cold water fish are salmon, tuna, halibut, sardines, herring. Um, those are just a few examples. I always tell patients if there's more smell, that's the one you want to get because it's, gonna, it's actually the fat that you're smelling. What's unique about these proteins is they can actually help reduce inflammation. And um, that can help reduce risk of other comorbidities and um, just even tolerance, um, you know, sometimes to treatment. But that's what you want your plate to look like as much as possible. Now, there will be times along the way during treatment where sometimes the patient's plate doesn't look like that, and that's okay. Um, we need to adjust to what the patient's going through, whatever side effect or symptom they're experiencing. And I kind of mentioned a little earlier, it works best when the caregiver and the patient work as a team. Um, you all being very open and candid with one another about how things are going, taking notes, um, Communicating on your own behalf. Don't leave it up just to the caregiver to communicate to the healthcare provider. Um, we need to know too from you what you're actually going through so we can better help support you. So have a voice in those conversations. Um, one of the things that I do see when patients do go through challenging times where they're not eating as much, typically they're not drinking as much. And hydration um, is so important. And we oftentimes forget about it on the list. But I always remind patients if you're not eating as much, you're typically not drinking as much. And some of the side effects that can come with dehydration are things like dizziness, headaches. Sometimes it can, you know, amplify the nausea and some other effects that you may be going through. 
So a general recommendation is for patients to drink between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day, so it's about 64 to 80 ounces. Um, and usually fluids that don't contain caffeine are more ideal. It's going to help you stay hydrated a little bit better. So just being mindful of that. Now, if you're experiencing side effects, tell the team, the care team, sooner rather than later. Oftentimes, they can step in and give you something to help address those side effects so that you're more comfortable and, and you know, feeling better and doing better with, with your treatment. So don't hold back. Don't blow it off and think, oh, it's no big deal. I'll probably feel better tomorrow. Communicate with your healthcare team. That's what we're here for. So in closing, you know, communication, working as a team, um, utilizing your team is so important. It'll take the stress off the caregiver. The caregiver doesn't have to know all the answers, which I think sometimes happens. They're trying to figure it out. Push that on your healthcare team. They know how to help you best. So working together, communication between the two of you, and then of course communication with the healthcare team is absolutely essential. Um, so know how to reach them, know who they are, realize that there are several people on the support team for you. There's a dietitian, there's physicians, there's social workers, there's a bunch of folks who are there to help you. So be sure to know them so you can connect with them. Um, in closing, um, I, I just want to appreciate, you know, I appreciate being part of today's presentation and I'm going to hand the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was wonderful and wonderful to actually, um, I think this is one of the first times that we've actually addressed the nutritional needs for caregivers. So I think that that's really important as well, and I appreciate you doing that today. And I'm going to say just a few words about um, some other caregivers that we sometimes, um, that we don't maybe think about. Um, we think um, one is about the role of the long-distance caregiver. So who is a long-distance caregiver? So it depends. If you live in a, in a state where people are quite spread out, a long-distance caregiver could be miles away from where the the person um, with multiple myeloma lives. Um, they also could be in a whole other part of the country, so really um, thousands of miles away, or and they, and they also could be in another country. And to some extent, that long-distance caregiver can be very helpful and important in the care of uh, as being a help, as additional help. Um, for the caregiver who perhaps lives closer to the patient. And so the idea is to get extra help for caregivers as much as possible who are living nearby. And so the long-distance caregiver is able to have access to a telephone, access to um, email, access to sending a card to a, a patient, a letter to a patient, um, uh, to family members. So the long-distance caregiver also can be a part of some of the telehealth, telemedicine appointments that we mentioned earlier. In other words, um, as long as the person with multiple myeloma agrees to this, a long-distance caregiver who may be a very close member of the family could very well be, it could be a, 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 a son, a daughter, a family member whom the caregiver, the patient feels very close to, they could be part of that telephone conversation with um, the telehealth, um, telemedicine appointment with the uh, physician as long as the patient agrees to it. And they could be another set of ears that could be very helpful um, in listening to the plan of treatment and in listening to um, any concerns that might be, be there. And also might be able to raise some issues that perhaps would be important as well. But that extra set of ears is really important. And it doesn't mean that the caregiver who's nearby also couldn't be on that telehealth, telemedicine appointment. And then the whole other issue for caregivers is managing family, friends, and loved ones, um, particularly during like uh, special occasions and things like that, and particularly with COVID um, out there. And a lot depends on really um, sometimes family, friends, and loved ones want to be visiting or want to spend time with the person who's um, dealing with multiple myeloma themselves. And the question is actually, is the person, do they have the energy to deal with them? Would they prefer to talk to them on the phone as opposed to having them come or on um, social media, some other way of contacting them as opposed to their spending time with them in their home? So that's something to consider. That we want to keep family, friends, and loved ones involved, but the question is always back to both the caregiver and the person living with multiple myeloma. How much can they tolerate someone being coming to their home to visit them, particularly with COVID-19. Um, and um, also, um, you know, wearing masks, um, 
being fully vaccinated, all those things really are important um, so that, and certainly it's not an issue when you use any type of technology, either the phone is technology or um, social media or, um, uh, you know, or just connecting, um, you know, online. So those are just options that we want to be sure you're aware of because they're really important um, to, to be aware of um, and, and there are additional sources of support, which definitely everyone needs. And also family, friends, and loved ones will often ask, what can I do to help? And there are various um, uh, resources out there in which um, there may be, perhaps there is a need for someone to do some shopping and maybe a family or friend could actually help with maybe something is needed. Um, I'll never forget a, a workshop I did um, pre-pandemic in a workplace setting in which um, one of the people in the audience, it was about kids from the workplace, and one of the people in the audience said, you know, she said, when initially people asked, what can I do for you? She said, oh, no, I'm fine. I don't need your help. But then she began to think about it. Gosh, somebody could actually buy some apples or some, some or somebody else could purchase some bread for her or somebody else could get do some errands that she needs to have done and just drop them off at her home. Um, and so that's another thing in which family, friends, and loved ones can be very helpful with and also take some of the burden off of the caregiver and the person living with multiple loans themselves. So it might be different items that you each would, might, might want, but remember that family, friends, and loved ones want to do something. And if they ask, can I do anything? And you say, oh, no, we're fine. Think about the fact maybe you, they could do something that would really um, be very helpful. Um, or I need paper products, or I need Kleenex, or toilet paper, or whatever it is that you might need. Um, so that's really important to be aware of. So now, um, with that being said, um, we're now, before we move on to the Q&A, um, I'm, I'm going to actually um, ask you a few more questions, and then we're going to move right on to the Q&A. And so please prepare your questions so we'll have them all ready. And, um, and I'm just going to ask you a few questions in terms of the um, to help us to see, um, again, you're participating in this questions will be people who are live streaming the program. You'll be able to hear me read the questions, and you'll be able to see the questions, and you'll be able to rate the questions. So the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the treatment of multiple myeloma in the context of COVID-19 and its variants. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the important role of the caregiver in decision-making and in communicating with the healthcare team. What is the highest rating and five the lowest rating? And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of the caregiver in adherence, weekends and holidays and vacations, and the role of the long-distance caregiver one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to cope with each day, special occasions, anniversaries, and birthdays, and with family, friends, and traditions in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question now. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to utilize caregiver self-care tips for managing lifestyle, nutrition, hydration, and stress. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank everybody for participating in the questions. That's really helpful to us um, to get a sense of what you've learned from this program. And also it'll help us as we plan all of our programs in 2022 um, and uh, to make these programs better. So I, I want to thank you all for being so um, helpful in this process. And now I'm going to ask Grace to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, and so I'm going to leave it to Grace. We'll tell you then how to queue up the questions, and um, we'll let the questions begin. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And um, we have a question from one of our, um, uh, one of our 
online participants. When it, when is the best time to get a? And this would be for Dr. Butler. When is the best time for um, to get a stem cell transplant um, after stem after stem cell harvesting? Can one wait and live with maintenance drugs, or is it best to get the transplant as soon as one is in deep remission? And again, to that. Yeah, that's a controversy that's been been going on uh, among um P- doctors that treat myeloma for uh for probably almost 20 years and it's still a- active. There are pe- so I when I talk to patients about transplant, I try to present both sides of it, but I don't I don't I'm not neutral. Um because there is still a consensus even with the the many treatment drugs that we have uh, and, and the many options besides transplant to manage the disease, there's still a consensus that transplant is uh, is a useful treatment. Uh, it, it gives us some benefit that nothing else can and that the time that, that, that when you have a good chance to do a transplant, like you're in remission and you're in, in good health and you're, you're kind of up for it, that there's no good, re- no, not really a reason to to pass that opportunity up because you you may later you may wish you had the opportunity. Um, so that's where kind of the majority of myeloma doctors still stand, but uh, but n- it's not unanimous, um, and it's the the research studies we have are a little bit hard to interpret because they take years and years to do, and by the time they are finished the treatments have changed and and we have more options and um and so it can be a little hard to tell um so it so it's a personalized decision the younger someone is the healthier they are the more strongly i push for transplant early um whereas uh you know, uh, other folks are do do okay to wait, and there's definitely people out there that say a delayed transplant strategy, meaning collect the cells, put them in the freezer, they keep for at least ten years, sometimes longer, uh, and then just you know save them for a rainy day. Um, that is that's a, a, a perfectly legitimate approach, and uh, folks that are really hesitant to go through all that a transplant entails. Uh, to sometimes favor that and I don't if if that's someone's choice I support it we work with it and we we just kind of keep the the transplant as a as in our back pocket for later if we need it um but it, it, if if someone is in a good candidate and and sort of able has the support has the strength to to go through with it uh I I try to I do suggest that they do it earlier rather than later when because um because the very best outcomes with myeloma, the people that achieve a remission that seems to never go away, um, by and large are people who do go through transplant. So that's just kind of still kind of the best best case scenario. But uh, but it's not for everybody. The, the, there are, are risks to it. And, of course, in, in COVID, everything is a little harder, uh, especially if you're going to be in the hospital with, with restricted visiting and being there alone for several weeks. Um, so all these are, are reasons to, to kind of consider delaying it, and there's nothing wrong with that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, And a question um, for um, Ms. Arade. Um, So, um, and actually there are two questions, and they kind of, um, well, one is uh, um, if you could recommend a support group for people, um, a support group it looks like, um, just to recommend a support group. Uh, sure. So, um, Cancer Care does offer um, support groups as well. Um, so, we do offer online support groups. These are for our national clients. So, you can absolutely join from pretty much wherever. Um, if an online support group, writing-based is not something that would work for you or you are interested in, there are a lot of um, local organizations, um, American Cancer Societies, cancer support communities as well um, that might have local offices to offer you support groups as well as the hospitals. And then there's another question for you. Um, it's um, This one is really, it's a bit long, but it's I think it's probably something that many people are dealing with. My dear friend's husband has multiple myeloma. 
His diagnosis is quite new and has just and he has has just started a chemo, he's just started chemotherapy. Right now he does not want people to know about his diagnosis. She is the social one in the family and would like to talk to people and would like to be able to ask for help, but he is reluctant to share his diagnosis with neighbors and his family. Can you give some suggestions to share with her husband to help her navigate this? So this is tough, right, um, because we want to be able to, you know, respect the person who has been diagnosed. Um, we want to respect their their feelings and their thoughts about it and the way that they are processing this diagnosis. Um, the most that um, his spouse can, can do, your friend can do, is to just keep those lines of communication open with her husband and um, talk with talk with him about what the benefits might be um, of sharing this news with other people because um, it is a benefit. It's not that, you know, they just know maybe his personal business, right? Maybe he's more reserved in that way, but it also opens up so many different lines of support. Um, you know, if neighbors or other family or friends are told about this diagnosis, there might be a lot more support that can be offered. Um, but the most that we that we can do is just encourage our loved ones to, you know, be honest um, with those that they are the closest with, right, about what is going on to open those lines of support. So, you know, for your friend, just encouraging her to keep those lines of communication open, um, you know, talk with her husband about that. And then at some point, you know, maybe he will, um, you know, change his mind over time and slowly start to let more people in. But but that that really is a tough one because we don't want to, you know, push the boundaries too far either. And do you think she might benefit from just contacting us for support or joining one of our support groups um, and without without sharing his name or anything or her name? Is that something that could be done um Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm sharing his name would not would would not be re required at all. So absolutely, um, any caregivers who are looking for any type of support or just resources, if we we don't offer the right support for you, please just reach out to us and give us a call. We'll get you connected. Thank you. And, and a lot of people do like the Cancer's a national organization, and so basically. Um, whoever you're talking to is not going to be from your hometown, and it basically, there's a, and we are all licensed clinical social workers. So basically, um, the ethics of your privacy, much like the privacy that you have with your doctor, um, is respected. It's absolutely no one shares any information, so it's all private. Um, the whole HIPAA protection of in information, and so many people do contact us for either support at one-on-one -on -one or to join um, a group, again, where people do not um, know each other's, um, they don't know, they don't know about how to, who, who each other is, and, and that could be something you could discuss with a social worker who is running the group as well. So you have a, so that's another choice, and I think um, in other organizations that you can contact for support just until things open up a bit with your husband. Um, um, so I think that's that's quite understandable, and um, and also there's a question for Doctor um, um, uh, Doctor Butler. Um, um, the question is um, about um, so in terms of um, of the whole issue of telehealth telemedicine appointments in terms of preparing for it. If you could say a little bit about um, guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, I think um, someone was asking about that. Yeah, well, this is a new thing for all of us, or relatively new. We're, we're still trying to figure out how to make the most of it. What we've known for a long time is that um, the physical exam, the touching of the patient, the listening to the heart and lungs, that is sometimes really useful. And in other times, it really is, it adds adds very little. Um, you know, as as a blood doctor, I'm mo I, I get a, most of my information from blood tests. So the first step to prepare for a telehealth visit is to uh, to make sure you've 
if there's blood work ordered, which in most cases there would be for someone with this disease, that you get it done and, and try to get it done a few days ahead of time so the results are all there. Um, labs work at different speeds depending on how big the lab is and what they have to send out. Um, the other thing is that um, you you can get you can learn more than you might think from video, um, depending on where on on where you are, what what type of device you're using, the lighting. Um, if you have a skin rash or you have a lump somewhere or you have a sore in your mouth or you know, there's lots of things that you could actually show your doctor um, by video, and it's it's a little bit hard to on the other end to 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 know what to look at or what to ask for but you know if you if you have something that you think is worth seeing well you you can you know you can get a, a sense of what that looks like uh through the technology um whereas if you don't point it out you know it might kind of get overlooked um so uh and then the other thing that's true of all visits is uh people often have a lot of questions ha- have a lot on their minds and um and you know once you get into the flow of the visit and the doctor's asking questions and they're you know talking about you know lab data and talking about treatment options um you 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 often forget to ask the thing that was was really on your mind um and uh it's sometimes hard to get a hold of doctors you know by other at other times and so when you have the, have the person here him or him or her there um you want to kind of make the most of it and uh and so you know having written questions or um concerns or you know things that you think they should be aware of uh if you have that in front of you, you you're less likely to forget and uh so you know that's a little trick to try to make the make the most of the time that you have and uh and get the information that you need Thank you so much. Thanks, Dr. Butler. And um, a question from Ms. Bearden. Um, is there a special diet when patients' um, blood counts are low? That I know you're asked that question often, and um, here it is on this call. Um, if you could address that as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a really popular question. Um, there's not a special diet. There's no you know specific food that may <clears throat> improve your cell counts, and sometimes when you go to the doctor, they'll give you results from lab tests, and they may say a certain lab is low, and, you know, that may inter- I don't know if that may or may not interfere with the treatment plan where they hold off or whatever the, the circumstances might be, um, but there isn't. What, what we do want patients to do is eat a variety of foods based on what they're going through, so based on your side effects, adjust the diet. Um, talk with your dietitian about maximizing, um, you know, what you're eating. Maybe there's um, some questions about what you're consuming or what might be more nourishing for your body, and those are great questions. One of the biggest concerns I tell patients is if you're not fueling your body and you're um, losing weight unintentionally, um, a lot of times while you're going through treatment, it actually, when you, when you don't eat enough, it, your body starts using your lean muscle mass for energy, and a lot of times the treatment in itself can cause some fatigue, um, and or the disease itself can cause some fatigue along with the treatment, and people feel really tired and they're very, they're very weak, but it's very important to eat, to try and, you know, move around as much as you can. Walking is, in itself is a great way just to be active. Um, it helps the digestion. It helps people feel better. It, it's a, it really helps your mood to just get out of the house. Um, but when it comes to a specific diet, there's not a specific diet. But in general, we want you just to eat a very diet, a balanced diet, work with your team to figure out working through how to work through some side effects, and then, of course, weight maintenance so that we, you know, that, that lean muscle mass isn't getting utilized for energy and you can keep the strength and endurance that you're used to having so you can do the things that you enjoy. Excellent. Thank you. And also a question um, for Dr. Butler, another question. When does um, uh, a patient start showing signs of getting better post-CAR-T? Um? Well, um, CAR-T is, is the the newest and, uh, you know, most 
most advanced and exotic treatment we have uh, for this disease. And so there's a lot we, we, we're still learning about it. Um, uh, but the it's an immunotherapy. It doesn't uh, wipe out the myeloma in one go. It it create it sets up a, a population of your own cells that can sort of slowly eliminate it. And so you don't necessarily expect uh, that the benefit to happen all at once. You expect to happen, it, to, it to happen progressively over time, even though you're not getting any more treatments because the treatment is already inside you. The cells are there, you know, working away. Um, but as far as the actual time course of, of when people feel better and, uh, and you know, what the milestones are, um, I don't have enough CAR T experience to really answer that. Um, this is uh, this is kind of the, the the frontier of our field right now. This is an excellent point, actually. It's a very good point, and um, it might be uh, certainly what we do recommend is that you uh, wonderful that you ask your questions here, but actually go back to the treating healthcare team. They might be able to give you some. Um, other tips as well, but um, I appreciate, um, Dr. Butler, what you said, because indeed this is a very new area, and I think um, uh, it's different. F I think, I, Well, I believe, as you said, it's different for everyone, so it's good to check with your healthcare team. Um, and we're very glad that your husband was able to get, um, or the family member was able to get the CAR-T. That's really important. Thank you. And we actually have a comment from one of our participants, really, um, to assist um, the caller, the, well, the person who actually um, posted a, the question about um, her husband. And so the person said, um, not a question, just a comment. I think your hus friend's husband will feel more comfortable with talking about his diagnosis in time. It processes his own feelings about the diagnosis. So I have to say this is um, probably all the time. Done. Yes. Sorry. Yes. And all the times we've been doing these programs, um, it's one of the first times that um, that someone has actually, um, um, you know, asked that as an offer to help. And so I really appreciate that as well. Now I want to thank our speakers. This has been a phenomenal call. I want to thank each of our speakers. Um, you've done just a wonderful job in, in this program today. And uh, um, I. Um, I, I do want to kind of wrap things up at this point. I want to thank our speakers, but I also want to thank our participants because you've all asked really such really great questions today um, on the program, and um, we're very grateful um, for your um, for the questions and also for our speakers today. Um, and um, however, I do want to address the fact that we do have many more questions in queue, um, and um, uh, and so. Um, so I do want to actually um, address those those concerns and questions that you may have. So um, for those of you who actually asked a question or for those of you who um, have a question yet to ask or are thinking of another question, um, I want to kind of give you some tips of what to do. For anyone in any of those categories, we want you to take whatever you've learned from today's program back to your treating healthcare team. I think that's really so important because your healthcare team knows you the best, and this is kind of a practice run for you. You're getting information, you're asking a question, you're more informed now in asking a question. So take your question back to your treating healthcare team, and they will then assist you um, with, um, with you know, with um, with addressing your concerns and and your questions. Because all of your questions are excellent questions, and they're questions that often your healthcare team can address. Also, remember that your healthcare team consists not only of your oncologist, but also it consists of oncology nurses, oncology social workers, financial specialists, um, patient navigators, a lot of different people on that team, financial advisors that can assist you. So just to be aware of that as well. That um, that you have all those people um, that can assist you in your healthcare team. Also, right now in the midst of COVID, and it's different in different parts of the country and the world, um, people have different um, experiences with uh, with uh, um, with 
feeling alone. So I want you to all know that you're now part of a very large community of support. Um, after today's program, you'll all be receiving a survey monkey evaluation. And um, in that evaluation, you'll be receiving also, in addition to your evaluating the program itself, you'll also have the chance to actually um, to get resources from us. Many of our speakers mentioned other resources in addition to Cancer Care as a resource. So you'll be getting that information from us as well. So most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I don't want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with multi-myeloma or any of the concerns that you may have. You're now part of a community of support, and we're all here to help you, including your healthcare team. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.